Ivy. Hi, Rachel. Before we start, do we want to set a timer? <laughs> sure. We don't have to, but we can. Yeah, let's set a 15-minute timer. 15, okay. Okay. All right, cool. Hello, and welcome to episode 106 of Commonplace with poet and scholar S. Yarbury, hosted by Commonplace producer Valentine Conady. This is your second time guest hosting a Commonplace episode. And I wanted to just start off asking you what you're excited for listeners to hear. Your first one was with Cody Rose Clevidence, and now this is with S. Yarbury. So what do, you, what do you want listeners to know? I think the biggest difference is just like the difference of being in person with S and on Zoom from opposite ends of the country or, you know, one end of the country and the exact middle of the country with Cody. I mean, I thought that Cody and I had a great rapport too, but I think it's really nice to be able to like meet someone where they are literally in the same space. There were fewer other things on my mind, like, oh, what if the audio cuts out? Oh, what if our connection doesn't work? It was very much just like, we're here in a room to talk. It was funny to have you in my home. Also, S's book was such a pleasure for me to read. As I said in the beginning of the Cody Rose episode, Cody Rose's book, I read enough to know, oh my God, this book is totally compelling to me, but I'm not in a place to read it where I I was in a really great place to read S's book. And there were times during the conversation where I felt a tinge of jealousy, like, I want to be in there. They're having so much fun. I, w- I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that poem. And then there were other moments where I felt really so glad that you were having the conversation instead of me because you brought a depth and a, and a seriousness in terms of outside books, in terms of the connection between the two of you, um, and really in terms of the theoretical uh, level on which S is working, which I think was not so apparent to me. And so I was I was really grateful for that. Yeah, I think it was nice talking to another queer person who kind of just, we have the same kind of, not the exact same background, obviously, but I think, and, and we talked about the differences in our background a little bit, but um, it was nice talking to someone with some commonality kind of assumed which I think I also did with Cody Rose but Cody Rose also reads literally everything and so there's like so many things that Cody was talking about that I was like this is awesome but I've never heard of it before you mentioned um wanting to be in the room and like that sort of tinge of jealousy and I guess listeners wouldn't know this but like we don't have a studio where Rachel is listening as the conversation is happening. So this like jealousy is kind of happening retroactively, which is really interesting. Something you said was you didn't think that you'd have been able to have the same conversations um, and get the same depth from a boy in the city being the person in the room. And I wondered if you could talk more about like 
I don't know what what you think having another voice asking the questions does for commonplace and can bring to the ongoingness of our conversations. That's such a great question. I mean, I think there's something helpful about the person who comes into the situation not knowing not having as much context or experience in a way as as the creator. And I think that a, a strength that I have uh, as host of Commonplace is mostly being able to access that part of myself that admits that I really don't know. I think it's interesting, you know, to think back across the hundred episodes, the pleasures and the challenges and there are also there's also a lot of shame and there's a lot of distress in this process for me often um, but what the those experiences are like when i'm uh connecting with a guest across on on the level of similarity and on the level of difference whether it's aesthetic kind of choices or um, or aesthetic identity i think i might say more or lived experience aesthetically I feel quite similar in a lot of ways to S and in other very different ways to Cody Rose. In terms of lived experience, I feel very not similar to either of them. Queerness, but age being almost equal to that. And I had the experience of uh, listening to you and S and I kept in my mind calling you the kids, which I hope you don't like you're not offended by, but I, I had moments <laughs> not at all. where I was like, oh, the kids are talking about sex again. There was something in listening to both these conversations that made me really aware of my age. And, and maybe to some extent, I think I might have a harder time being open in conversations with emerging or more emerging younger authors than I do with more established authors like Carl Phillips. And so I think there's a lot of things at play with that. I will also say like, I have such a selfish relationship in some ways to, to commonplace. And I'm really trying to figure out my own life. I'm thinking a lot about my conversation with Tori Peters. I felt that Tori's work was giving me permission to think about transness through as a lens, um, to think about my similarities as a divorced woman with Tori's experiences as a trans woman. And I, you know, I have, I have a lot more to say about that, um, you know, Anyway, this was a very long way to say, I wanna be in the room because there are questions that I wanna know for me. But some of those are not the questions that are the most interesting for us to answer. And um, there's some harm in that. So I feel like you got to a level with us that is deeper and and ultimately more interesting to me and more satisfying um, than the way I would have gone into it. It's always a big issue and question for me in my creative work and I, 
I more and more consider commonplace to be part of my creative work, that's a shift that's happened to me, is like, what is a self? And there are parts of me that, you know, are jealous of you being in the room and being outside the room. There are parts of me that are so relieved not to be in the room. And I guess I feel like this switching of roles within the format of commonplace has been extremely helpful to me for my psychological, emotional work that I'm doing and for my creative work. In some ways, the challenge in the past few years has been more technical, more COVID related, and more individual based on like my feelings and particularly my fears around doing a good job with particular guests. It's really helpful to have formal challenges right now, rather than just these kinds of like almost personal challenges that feel um, like they take a real psychological toll on me. The ability to take a step back and to literally not be listening to my own voice is it really provides some like beautiful, beautiful opportunities for me for creative work. And, and I don't know that this would be working very well for me if you weren't doing such a great job. I'm glad that you feel like I'm doing a good job. I, I enjoy <laughs> You're it. You're doing so. a great job. Um, how do you want listeners to receive and engage with episodes that aren't in your voice since you kind of already have this like dynamic and rapport established with listeners you know we receive the most like beautiful loving fan mail and all of them are like Rachel you are the one who has like brought me back to the page you are the one that has like helped me through like all of these difficulties with my body with gender with like trying to find my place in society. I don't know that I've acknowledged how big shoes you have to step into in that role. Yeah, I guess how how do you hope that listeners receive these episodes? I guess I feel a few things. One, I never put out commonplace, never puts out a, an episode that I don't stand behind, that I don't find, you know, t- really interesting and useful. I love this poet. I love this book. You do a fantastic job. And each episode also we get to hear and know a little bit more about you. You bring something really uniquely your own to these conversations and get things from these writers that I would never think to ask. And I think that that's really, really important. And it's it's also made me in a way feel more comfortable about what I bring. So thank you for saying that. I should mention that my I have a book coming out. Um, I've mentioned it a little bit on Commonplace, but you're gonna hear a lot more from me in, in my voice. It's a book of lectures. And so that's a really big deal for me. I've been working on that book, you know, for almost 10 years and struggling to figure out how to bring that book into the world and, and, and in a way that feels safe and pleasurable and good for me. This is the first book that I've published since my divorce, you know, all this stuff. Um, okay, can I read the 
Can I tell people what they're getting? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So in honor of this episode, all Commonplace patrons will get access to an MP3 of S reading from a work in progress. I'm very excited to hear that. And a few of S's favorite generative writing exercises. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following incredible books. C.A. Conrad's Amanda Paradise, courtesy of Wave Books. The Odyssey, translated by Emily Wilson, courtesy of W.W. Norton. The Complete Poetry and Prose of William Blake, courtesy of U.S. Press. Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, courtesy of New York University Press. Maggie Nelson's On Freedom, courtesy of Grey Wolf. Many thanks to the presses who give us books um, for this episode and for other episodes. And so much gratitude for patrons who support Commonplace. You are the only funding that we have. If you would like to become a patron of Commonplace or if you'd like to talk to us, about any financial support you'd like to offer, including financial advice, um, please visit our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast, or you can find a link to our Patreon and to our newsletter, which is becoming more and more exciting, full of content-rich delights. Uh, And you can find all of that at our website, commonpodcast.com. What am I forgetting, V? Um, Well, something that we are going to get for our newsletter, sign up for our newsletter, please, uh, is S is going to share some of their favorite places, sites in all of their cities across the Midwest. Something we talked about in the conversation was being an outsider in a region that isn't where you grew up in and like delving deep into the life of a different region. Um, We should have included a bio Mm -hmm. for S. Yes. S. Yarbury is a trans poet and writer. Smith's first book of poems, A Boy in the City, was published this year by Deep Vellum. Their work is also anthologized in Queer Voices, Prose, Poetry, and Pride from Minnesota Historical Society Press 2019. They graduated from Lewis and Clark College in 2016 and recently received their MFA in poetry at Washington University in St. Louis, where they held the Junior Teaching Fellowship in Poetry from 2019 to 2020. They're now a PhD candidate at Northwestern University, where they are a Mellon Cluster Fellow in Poetry and Poetics, studying 20 and 21st century receptions of William Blake. Their research specifically focuses on Blake's revival in avant-garde circles that mobilize his poetry and legacy for political agendas in often conflicting nationalist contexts. Catch them at MLA 2023, presenting their paper, Transness, Transmutability, and Creation in William Blake's The Book of Urizen. Um, Our 15-minute timer has passed. Um, I, I wanted to not let it ring and interrupt you so that we can at least uh, do more.
So, you are here. I am um, here. In Rachel Zucker's home. Yes, very cool. <laughs> we are <laughs> on the second floor in the, like, studio slash guest bedroom. Um, and we're going to have a conversation. We are. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a celebrity's home, so <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> do you know Rachel's work? I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's a, she's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. She's great. So <laughs> yeah. it's cool to just, you know, it's meet super her, cool. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I tried to act as casual as possible, but I was like, whoa. So while we were downstairs talking with Rachel, we were talking about Chicago and... St. Louis and Minneapolis. And since your book is called A Boy in the City, (laughs) I wanted to start with just like asking like what the specific cities that you came up in and that are like homes to you, what those sort of specifics of place mean for this book and like how those cities appear throughout this book and throughout I guess, your relationship to your writing and yourself? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, um, yeah, so I grew up in Southern California in, in Orange County, um, which I don't write a ton of poems about the OC, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> but the ocean appears a lot, I think, in, in, in this book. And, and so that's, you know, kind of kind of where, where I started. But most of the cities that I think appear in, in A Boy in the City are, these Midwestern cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Louis, uh, Chicago, um, a little bit and, and New York. I, I, uh, spent some, I think time here that, that was really, uh, you know, it really inspired me. It turns out New York's really inspiring, you know? So the uh, city. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, you were saying at the reading. At class. the reading, the city. Um, I, and, you know, I was also dating, um, you know, there are a few different relationships I, I had that were, you know, really important to me when I was writing this book. And a lot of, like, long-distance things. So I was traveling a lot, and I was kind of going to these different places and, you know, moving and, and doing all of that. So, um, you know, I feel like the city became... Uh, you know, these, this kind of multitude of cities, but also, you know, these little homes and um, these kind of home away from homes, you know, when you, when you have someone that you care about in other places. Uh, So, you know, I I feel like, you know, the city becomes kind of this both very singular thing, but also this, this place that moves around. I didn't mention this downstairs, but my, my brother actually lives in Chicago. Oh, so cool. I have awesome. a little bit of a relationship with Chicago yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, I moved to Chicago, like, uh, right kind of at the end of, of r- the poems uh, that I wrote for this collection. So I feel like, you know, all the book stuff has happened while I've been in Chicago. So I feel like Chicago is very, like, a part of the book. But I, I'm like, I guess I didn't really write, like, a ton of poems while I lived there for a boy in the city. Second mm-hmm. book, though, super Chicago-centric, you know? Okay, yeah, looking yeah, forward yeah. to A Boy in the City, too. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> boy in the City, Chicago. <laughs> Another Boy in yeah. the City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned, like, that you wrote a lot of poems specifically for this collection. You know, it is your debut collection. Did you write these chronologically are they in the book in a somewhat chronological order um because there are sort of narrative arcs you can see sure. through the yeah the book. yeah i uh yeah i definitely didn't write um i feel like i wrote poems 
mm-hmm. and they became the collection. You know, I, I don't think I was ever writing like poems for the collection, but there there is uh, these poems that you know appear throughout the the collection as the kind of patterning device we'll call it um these pillars these chapters um and those I did write as a kind of narrative piece I I took a a novel workshop uh while I was at WashU in St. Louis uh with Catherine Davis um and it was really fun uh but I am not good at fiction at all <laughs> total failure for for the fiction part of me but I got this kind of weird little poem thing that out of it um and that is kind of what I used as like okay I have all these loose poems in the world um and and that kind of narrative was what I was kind of working around to make these little constellations that come in throughout it So you're talking about this like structuring mechanism that the workshop gave you. Are you talking about the untitled poems that keep recurring? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So were those originally written as like a single poem that you spread out or were they written specifically as like chapter heads? They were written as a verse novel. Okay. Uh, um, but as you, I think it's whatever, eight pages or something. I didn't get very far. Okay. <laughs> Turned out I didn't have that much to say. Um, or what all I had to say fit in, in a short space, we'll say. That's uh, the optimistic version of, of that. Um, so yeah, that was written as a single, singular piece that then I kind of patchworked into the collection, yeah. Have you written any fiction as well or <laughs> I, no? I, uh, I have a ongoing novella called The Balloon Factory uh, that is uh, constantly in production but has never hit its stride yet. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to work on. It's like my little side project. Um, and it's fun to say, oh, yeah, I'm working on a novella, you know, just like uh, to throw that in the air. Um, but yeah, yeah, the balloon factory. So maybe one day, maybe mm-hmm. one day. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I've been um, on a slight hiatus from poetry lately. I okay. have been working on a play. Oh, awesome. And I feel so like snooty and awesome Hell whenever yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm working on a play. So I know the feeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your play about? <laughs> my play is about, oh my God, uh, the pandemic. And like, so I had this idea that the um, the pandemic kind of is this perfect setup yeah. for like a really limited cast play. So it's like basically the, the story of like me and my partner and our like changing relationship both to each other and like the outside world through the pandemic because, you know, there's no other people in your life. And suddenly this one person has like so much importance. Sure. Yeah. So kind of just relationships and sure. Is it written like uh, mostly through conversation and dialogue or are there, is a lot of like soliloquies and like kind of missed uh, monologues or something? Um, Mostly conversation and dialogue. I actually though have been really excited about like stage directions and using like nonverbal kind of acting and playwriting, which is, um, Maybe the poetry side of me coming out and like sure. asserting itself a little bit. Um, oh, cool! But I guess you know, yeah. reading this yeah. definitely like the play was on my mind because a lot of your work does have a very like theatrical component to it, sure. which could be sort of the legacy of like classicism and romanticism in your work. Mm. Um, 
You actually have a poem called Stage Directions and another one called Terminal Theater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I, a lot of my poems, even the ones that, that aren't, you know, necessarily going straight into the word theater, stage directions and stuff are written in, in a way as monologues. And I, I think that's been like a useful way of, of writing for me is kind of thinking about, you know, a moment in which I, I step on stage and have a moment to say something. What do I say? Um, and, uh, you know, so the, these poems, these ones that are stickic, especially right, these like poems that don't st uh, stanzas and are, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, talking to myself, you know, <laughs> um, those I, I've really... Uh, you know, been inspired, I think, by the monologue as, you know, a theatrical device. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think looking at the world um, and envisioning the world in, in a way that feels um, kind of spectacular, as in like the, the spectacle, um, is, is also uh, one of the things that inspires me or one of the ways that I enjoy writing about the world. Uh, so I think the theater just becomes this, this way of... Um, you know, taking the things of, of real life and, and putting them in this, uh, you know, spectacular stage. Um, you know, how do things look? How do things feel? What do you get to say when you're alone on stage? Uh, so I think that's kind of what one of the ways that the theater has inspired me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say that. I, I've just started going back to readings after, you know, the pandemic. Sure. But, sure. um, Something I've noticed in the past few weeks, because uh, I've been to quite a few readings in the past few weeks, yeah. that I guess I didn't really appreciate before is like how different something can read on the page versus like experiencing it when sure. the poet is actually reading it. And I had that experience with your work last <laughs> night, actually. <laughs> oh, um, cool. It's it's a lot funnier <laughs> when when you're like voicing it. And I think yeah. that's often the case because yeah. poetry can feel very like serious sure. on the page, right. you know, right. um, yeah. because it takes so much like focus and discipline to like sit with it and yeah. feel those feelings. But I think like there's a lot more room for like performativity and like humor and self-deprecating, you know, <laughs> creativity in like right. the performing of it. Um, I'm glad you said that because I always think my poems are pretty funny and then I'm like, I can see why like if you don't know me or you can't hear my voice or like kind of like <laughs> uh, the different tones that I think, you know, one person has uh, like, yeah, it's like the topics are pretty serious sometimes that it's like, yeah, it's probably not appropriate to be like that poem's so funny. It's like about, you know, wanting to kill yourself or something. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I definitely, you know, appreciate getting the chance to read them and like have people there where I think it, it does kind of open them up to a little bit more uh, a pers uh, personality or something. Yeah, I, uh, I've i really been having fun getting to do readings again, too. Mm -hmm. Good to have Zoom stuff, totally. But, you know, it's fun to be in person and get to like, you know, I mean, it's the theater, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you get to be up there and then kind of do your thing so yeah 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 last night was a blast yeah it was <laughs> while we're talking about all these poems we should definitely have you read something i'd love for you to read the scholar great yeah sure i can i'll read the scholar the sentence became a medium for desire to traverse then a livelihood began to take place the difference was all in the performance I dress up, 
at night and watch the bugs fuck beneath the porch light. I wish to end it all. It rains. It rains again. There's an exhaustive sort of brutality to my life, a mundane existentialism that leans in close to the death clatter of that epistemic grid of what it means to be another undone suicide. I put the television on, a show, radiant theater of sitcoms, where suicide does not exist, the hard word, the concept, the oblivious object, an addiction, this idea. If I enter the myth, what desires will I have to fill? I find myself asking, asking again. I have often needed to save my life. A methodology to my existence is desirable, something excruciatingly formal. I speak in polemics, eternal and infernal. It's not really playful, the ending of my life, though theatrics are certainly involved. Ah, to cohere to the world we make ourselves up in. I twirl my arm around, like a windmill, a chainsaw. I pray to Aphrodite with a penny in my mouth. There's a life we live and a life we forget. When the trees blow back and forth in the cold November wind, I think them torsos and heads shaking wildly in my window, occupying, the trees do, the corner of my eye. I can only think posthumously these days. The fire in my heart has gone kaput, kaput, from etra capot to be without tricks in a card game. My heart is out of tricks and the game has gone sour. There's a beach down the street that I never make it to. The texts gone unanswered, the emails, the calls. Sorry, I'm always chuckling. What is one to do? How malleable a lifetime of displeasure can be. Nightly I swarm, nightly I consider stars and winter mornings. I read theory on the discursive limits of sex. Purpose, a charming little polemic, to call a war upon my own polytropo self. This self, that did nothing, really. The trees swerve outside, of course I want to die. The trees swerving, nightly I string myself up. Yeah, I love this poem. It was one of the first ones that I like started highlighting in, <laughs> in the book. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a big highlighter. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but um, I love the like little classical details, like the... Um, praying to Aphrodite with a penny in your mouth, which like you wouldn't necessarily like, it's so easy to, to get something from them, but not get the full depth of them unless you like know the history of like ancient Greece sure. and like the idea that um, if I remember right, it's like uh, you have a coin on your tongue when you're going into the underworld for right. the, um, for the boat keeper, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, so I, that is part of it, and also um, it's uh, uh, allusion, we'll call it, uh, to mm -hmm. um, one of uh, C.A. Conrad's uh, somatic exercises um, where they have you put a penny in your mouth and then, you know, do a bunch of <laughs> wacky stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> See, that's a whole nother level. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... This brings up one of the questions that was sort of stewing in my mind throughout the collection, which is a question about like sources and origins. Sure. And I think this is going to be a question that comes up a lot in very many different ways because it's a very big one. But I was thinking about 
Blake. Sure. Um, I'm the first one to mention him today, which is funny. I know. <laughs> since you said that you're always mentioning him. But um, I was trying to be polite, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's my job yeah, to like yeah, yeah. bring up things from the book. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So between like Blake and romanticism mm-hmm. and Greek mythology in general, but frequently I saw allusions to the Odyssey, to mm-hmm. the myth of Icarus, uh, various different like heroes in Greek myths Mm -hmm. from these sources. You're able to like use these illusions to tell like very queer stories, Mm -hmm. you know, stories about having multiple partners um, spread across the United States stories about having complicated relationships to those partners and complicated relationships to like public and private space all of which feel very like fresh and new and like I said, very deeply queer. And I guess yeah. I'm wondering, was there like any friction for you between these sources that you were using and the sort of stories that have traditionally been told using those models, the epic, the soliloquy, the love poem mm-hmm. and the kinds of stories that you wanted to tell? Yeah. Excellent question. I was just uh, talking to my friend who's uh, in the PhD program with me. Her name's Allie DeBailey and a uh, really brilliant scholar, really cool person. Uh, but she's putting together this this awesome uh, seminar for, for a, a uh, conference. And uh, it's on the politics of form. And, uh, you know, it's coming from a, a different angle, but it's all going to come together uh, as I talk <laughs> here. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I was just thinking about this uh, with her, you know, the other day. Um, but, you know, the form, the poetic form, the poetic mode, poetic history uh, that has all of these elements of, uh, you know, history that right that is impossible for, I think, you know, uh, holding queer stories or holding trans stories specifically um, right, that that it feels uh, like out 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 of bounds or something, um, while also you know it being the the history we have to work with, um, and and I think that was one of the the things I, I think about a lot in my poems, especially because I'm I'm always also reading now in the PhD scholarship 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 blah blah, um, you know, is thinking about how these uh, these things can also be you know both an impossible history for a trans person and also be the history of a trans person, um, right? That it's, it's the literature that, that we have. It's the literature, um, that I read. It's the literature that I love that has, you know, changed my life. Um, and, and thinking about how to kind of incorporate that into my poems, if, if sometimes in form, sometimes in content, uh, right? Sometimes in illusions, whatever. Um, but always kind of, trying to to patch something together um to make it both uh you know both my own and also um put it on the spot a little bit and 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 see if it works um uh and uh yeah yeah so that that's one of the things that i'm thinking about i i think in in terms of the way that i'm i'm incorporating other uh stories or or other uh you know literary elements myth- mythological elements whatever I think one of the things that um, 
was so moving to me was how there is this kind of narrative through arc and like kind of chronology and reverse chronology that's happening through the book where you are sort of both building the city and destroying the Mm. city at the same time. And the city is also you and the city is also your relationships, both to the literal place and also to your partners Mm. and to your friends and to strangers even. And so is it too soon to have you read another poem? (laughs) Is it too soon? Uh, We we can do it, you know? (laughs) Uh, let's, let's go. Okay. So (laughs) city builders is the poem that I'm thinking of because it's literally about building the city. Um, (laughs) true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. All right. City builders. When your body meets my body, the world goes blank. We build a new landscape. We call each structure new, 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 then work in progress. The pastoral lies somewhere beyond the skyline. We've broken sweat. We call each other, yes, yes, then don't stop, then don't leave. We have new names, or our names are new to us again. You pick beetles and I pick rays to inhabit the city safe from extinction. And then we play a real game where we pick fallen hairs off one another's bodies, who's who, both dark and in varying lengths. I don't have the words for what we are building, not exactly, but the buildings have purpose, even if they're not all homes. I am saying the city is untouched, unseen, or unforeseen. I am saying you touched me somewhere I cannot explain or locate. I call you, you, and you call me, you, and once we sat on the fire escape, sweating in the early heat of May. We filled our mouths with beer from gold cans, smoke thick, 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 bright tongue, slick lips, fingers to suck like hard candies, anything else than the word, we know, we should say. Instead, we sit and listen to the sound of some structure a few blocks down, get its walls busted in, naming it in our head, new, 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 your hand brushes my knee. Rachel and I talked about this poem for like an hour (laughs) and uh just like I don't know we were talking about like writing sex poems and how it's like a difficult art but that you can do so much with the erotic if Mm. you stop thinking of it as like a sex poem right yeah um because a lot of the poems in this collection are erotic sure but they do very different things with that so can, yeah. can you talk a little bit just about like w- how how the erotic has been sort of useful for you as a lens? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, when I started my, my MFA uh, in St. Louis, suddenly I, it, it was so funny because I feel like, you know, we're all whatever – you know, in class together, we're all adult people. And suddenly, you know, everyone has, you know, a little romance in their poem or something. And, and suddenly everyone gets very nervous and is like, won't say sex, right? No one wants to say it's about sex. Um, so everyone says it's about eros. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was what uh, 
I, you know, I, I was like, I don't know, where, what is this world that we're living in where everyone's like, oh, I see Eros there, you know? Um, but I love it. Now I love it. And, and I say that all the time. I'm like, the, the poem has Eros, right? Not sex, Eros. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, that was kind of, I think, a useful lens for me to approach writing um, was to think of it um, as the erotic, as in Eros, right? As in this kind of more of a relationship or if, if not a dichotomy, because that implies just two things, but this, this cosmopolitan um, uh, kind of realm in which to, to interact in um, and, and, you know, the, the tensions that come with, with this kind of multitude uh, of desires um, in, in the singular place uh, was, I, I think, one of the things that, that was really exciting to me and really useful for me to kind of work through in, in writing uh, the poems that are in this collection. Yeah, it's, you know, I see so many of these, like, theories of, like, desire mm-hmm. of the erotic that are not in the collection and to some extent I might be bringing those to the collection (laughs) myself, but, um, you know, I was thinking about Audre Lorde uses of the erotic. I was thinking about, I'm currently reading Maggie Nelson's new book on freedom and she has this whole section about, um, sexual optimism Mm. and the like possibilities of thinking of sex as like a, a a site of learning and like, you know, uh, both of those also connect to, um, the kind of utopian aspect of sexuality, which, um, has been like theorized by, uh, Jose Esteban Munoz. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know. I think there's something so interesting and there's a, there's a tension between like, the utopian aspirations of well really and any utopia is sort mm-hmm. of a tension between possibility and disappointment right. because right. you know the utopian is like an idea that is an aspiration but frequently is like an impossibility yeah but um to bring that back to the book there's like especially in lines like the pastoral lies somewhere beyond the skyline and new, new, we call each structure new, 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 and then work in progress. There's this like initial high of mm-hmm. like aspiring to what we can create together, everything right. that we can create together, and then pulling back yeah. and having a more, not necessarily ambivalent, though I think there is some room for ambivalence in the erotic in this collection, Mm -hmm. but in this poem specifically more like multivalent um, relationship to sex and love and the erotic and the utopian. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like a reassertion of that incompleteness and impossibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think the, you know, one of the absolute, you know, feelings, I guess we'll just call it a feeling of possibility is, is something that I, I really like writing about because, um, you know, the possibilities of desire and, you know, yes, often they fail. Right. And, you know, you brought up Icarus earlier and, and I, you know, that's someone that, that, 
comes, you know, or someone, a figure, uh, an idea uh, that comes uh, into the collection too, right? But this like possibility that that does ultimately fail. Um, but, you know, there is that that initial, you know, that initial high, that initial flight, that initial moment where, where anything is possible. And, you know, we, I think we society uh might get caught up in right the failures right that that it will fail but being able to stay i think for a moment in a poem especially where you get to you know have the world you want for a minute uh you know to to kind of stay in that moment where where desire hasn't fallen flat yet mm-hmm. uh, uh right and whether that's that's with a person or whether that's with an idea or or whatever i think that's one of the things that i really get a lot of joy writing, um, writing about, writing from, writing for, um, and, and kind of building that, that moment, um, that, that gets to stay, you know, possible, even, even if the impossible is, is just on the horizon. You, you talk about failure a lot in the collection or mm-hmm. sort of allude to failure, yeah, which also made me think of, uh, Jack Halberstam's The Queer Art of Failure, <laughs> You know, I, I come yeah. from a gender studies background, so right. that I have all of these things in my <laughs> awesome. head. Yeah. But um, I, I think, especially in The Scholar, when you say, I'm reading theory about the discursive limits of sex, <laughs> uh-huh. I guess there was a part of me that was thinking, maybe I'm not bringing all of this to the collection. Maybe, like, there is this, like, back backhand structure that isn't necessarily like visible in the collection, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I don't know. Can you talk about like how your work as a scholar, particularly as a queer and trans scholar, um, kind of provided a, um, backdrop and like tool set of, theories and models and um, possibilities that allowed you to bring together these not necessarily archaic, but in some ways older models in like new ways. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's funny to be a a queer trans scholar, (laughs) Um, especially I think in the sense that my, the work that I that I work on, like my dissertation project, uh, all that fun stuff, like has nothing to do with with queerness or transness. I study like twentieth receptions of William Blake, just mm-hmm. really broadly, and like especially like avant garde circles. And uh, you know, I'm just kind of randomly trans, you know, <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like how I feel in a lot of like the work that I'm working on um, and reading, and 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 all of that is is just this kind of. Uh, you know, William Blake world that I've built uh, for myself, which has been, you know, which is a blast. Um, and, you know, but I am reading a lot of, I, I read a lot of theory. I have, you know, I'm always reading all this stuff that's not poetry or not like literature proper, but this kind of, you know, side stuff, side uh, readings. And I really... I wouldn't say I like reading it sometimes. I think it can be so boring. And I'm often like, why would I read this when I could just read a poem? <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, why am I writing this thing if I could just write a poem, you know? But that's okay. I, that's that's a personal problem. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the the idea of writing theory, 
I think is something that is, you know, adjacent at least to writing poetry and kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, writing possibility, writing desire. I think writing theories of the way, you know, to understand whether it's literature or the world or people, you know, trying to come up with something uh, that, that, you know, is, is able to articulate the possibility of something that hasn't been articulated before in a way that is is clear and uh useful to someone else i i think you know it's uh that's exciting to me um and it's exciting to read and i i think that that kind of is the element of scholarship or the element of this uh more scholarly realm that that i inhabit sometimes that i think you know meets me halfway in 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 poetry land uh where i feel a little bit more uh, comfortable <laughs> but you know the the that that idea of, of of theory i think is is a really useful one so we're talking a little bit about your identity as a scholar um, I, I don't know if that's sure, something yeah. you, you, you've wrote a poem about it. Yeah. So I yeah, assume no, it's yes, okay yeah, to be like, yeah. you're a scholar. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, I wonder, because I don't see that in this, I don't see this in the collection, but I wonder if it might also be a part of it. Have you, I assume as a PhD student, as a scholar, you are also teaching. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, like, does that come into the collection? Does that come into maybe the idea of a soliloquy and a monologue that mm. kind of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love teaching. That's like my, uh, it's one of the things that gives me so much enthusiasm in the universe. I love it because, you know, I'm a, when I teach, I get to read things either that I haven't read before, <laughs> which is always a little bit reckless, but fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and also I get to reread a, a ton of stuff that I've already read before. And it gives me like a good opportunity to, you know, uh, read, you know, a Keats poem that I like. I'm like, yeah, I love Keats, but I don't like sit down and get the chance to read him a lot because I don't work on him. And, you know, or get to, you know, pick a few miscellaneous poetry collections and get to like sit with a group of people who've never read it before and talk about it. And I think that energy of, of, being in a room with people, especially people who are experiencing, you know, literature, a piece of literature for the first time is just one of the coolest, you know, things in the world. I, and I, I could, you know, sit there all day. And that's why I'm like, I would, I love to teach. I want to be a teacher. And I, uh, you know, I, I feel really, you know, lucky to get to kind of re-experience literature constantly with people who are experiencing it for the first time. I think, I think that's one of the, the ways that, that teaching is, is kind of constantly kind of giving me this motor to, to write and, and relook at things, um, re-examine things that I think I know and, and turn out that I, I don't always know it the way I, I, I thought I did. Have you taught, are you uh, teaching? I am not. I, um, you know, it sounds fun. (laughs) I am, I've thought about pursuing a PhD many times. Sure. And so my brother is a PhD student in okay. Chicago. Oh, and, oh right. Um, yeah, cool. He's, he's in math and like pure math. So it's very wow. different, but yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know, just the whole, like every time I hear about it from him, he seems miserable. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm glad that I'm not doing yeah, that right yeah, now. But yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's definitely, something about like being a, 
I don't know, cultural intermediary or something mm. with like a podcast yeah, or like even just writing reviews. Yeah. Um, I think that I'm really excited by and I guess proud of the ways that I've made an intellectual life for myself that involves like higher thinking and poetry yeah. without necessarily going into academia because sure. just the labor <laughs> politics of academia are yeah. soul crushing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you'll ever meet a PhD student who's like, I love doing this, you know? Yeah. Other <laughs> uh, than the teaching part. Other than the teaching part. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, yeah, people are, are a little bit, you know, miserable. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I, uh, you know, and I, catch me on a different day and I'll complain, <laughs> you know, all, all, for all eternity about something. But, you know, I, I, the reason I like doing a PhD, so here's my, my optimism coming mm-hmm. through today, um, is, you know, I'm always like, what else am I going to do? You know, if I have to have a job... I may as well be a PhD student. Why not? You know, and, you know, one day I'll be hopefully, uh, you know, a tenured professor and blah, 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 and get to have, uh, you know, that little lifestyle. But until then, I was like, well, uh, you know, my options are limited. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, really try and remind myself that it is a job and it is work. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where it gets really convoluted in, in people's lives is is you know because we get to read and because we get to work on projects that we like I think it, it's hard to set boundaries of like you know it is still work it's exhausting it's tiring it's you know performing it's you know being a, a person in the world that has to be on and and know things at the same time I think yeah I, I know uh, you know it's it's can be rough stuff but I I for the most part feel kind of like you're talking about like it's an intellectual world I get to to be involved in and I think that that is uh something I feel lucky to to get to do but I do want to get back sure, to sure. the book a little bit yeah 100% um, so does your teaching feel like external to your writing um something Rachel has talked about a lot is like how she teaches a class toward the book she's writing or mm. something, something to that effect. Right. And I know some other people who are teachers who do that kind of work where mm-hmm. they um, connect their creative and their, I guess, pedagogical lives more directly. And maybe it's also different because you're a PhD student and I'm right. sure you're kind of told what you're teaching. It's not like yeah. you have tenure. Right. Um, hopefully one day. Yeah, one day. One <laughs> I wish day, that for day. you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but do you feel like those are connected or um, did, did that influence the creation of this book in any way? So, you know, I feel like teaching for me is something I, I try to kind of keep, I guess, separate from, from, I, you know, writing my poems is like, uh, I try to kind of keep out of everything else, you know, and, you know, I, I love teaching, but it is, you know, um, I take it as my job, you know, doing like my PhD work, I take it as my job. Mm-hmm. And I think I do, right. And those things, of course, are like always trickling into my, my world, because I'm, you know, person in the world. <laughs> but uh, I do think I, I try to keep like my, my book kind of in its own 
special space, right? And and write it in my notebook at my desk and, and you know, try to like not engage it in like other, you know, uh, you know, I'm acting like I, I like am always writing this book or something, but poems, poems, mm-hmm. uh, just generally uh, loose poems in the world, um, right? I try and keep those, you know, kind of out of the way of, of the other things that I participate in. I, I think especially because I do write really work that I, I you know, feel really intimate uh, about and is about intimacy, that it feels kind of like its own intimate space that I engage in. And so I, I don't think uh, I, I tend to really engage it with with those other aspects. Can you talk about a little bit more about why? Like why you do sort of create that partition in your life? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's to really remind myself that like poetry for me is something that I like to do mm-hmm. and I choose to do it and I want to do it. And I think when it gets kind of wrapped up in, in you know, the institution, uh, it, it st- starts to feel like, oh, something I'm producing or something that like has to be done. And and I don't ever want to feel that way. And I, 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 you know, talking about utopias, right? This is a little utopic, right? This is like sometimes, uh, you know, it does feel that way, right? Sometimes I am literally in the institution writing a poem. But I, I do think that it's been important to me to to try and like always feel good about poetry. Um, even if the poem's are sad and like I feel terrible. I still feel good about writing them and mm-hmm. it still feels like a good thing to do. And and I don't like it to be too wrapped up in in these other things that that feel like oh I'm like doing work. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this is bringing up one of my other big overarching questions which is like a thousand other questions. Sure. <laughs> which is ever since the pandemic I've been thinking constantly about like public versus private and um you know the gendered and sexual dynamics of public versus private space theorized by second wave feminism yeah all kind of percolating up in in you know everyone being at home us working at home and it's it's a big tangled mess and i don't know how to (laughs) engage with it but you even before I read the part in the the notes yeah. where you say that you're fascinated by that distinction yeah, sure. between the public and private, that was something I was thinking about throughout the collection. And so you say a note on the unnamed poems. I'm very interested in the constant issue that we live two lives, the public life and the private life, and that these two converge and diverge at important apexes. It's not that these represent a different story, but a parallel one and unfolding amid what is already unfolding, though not always the central topic of conversation. And then you talk about this concept of the stasimon, mm-hmm. which I might have pronounced that wrong. Sounds good to me. Cool. I want to understand this more. Um, so <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about what this means and like, how it provided a model for you in the book. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was super interested in, in this idea of, right, a stationary song as, as, you know, thinking that it, it kind of 
warped my brain a little bit in a good way, but thinking of, of a song being stationary or, or not stationary. And I mean, obviously, you know, part of what they're talking about is, you know, in, in theater, right, that the, the course is, is staying put, literally, uh, physically. Um, and, uh, but also that, right, thinking about the way that a song is, is, I think, impossible to be stationary. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's out in the world. It's, out, it's, you know, a voice, it's, it's music. And uh, that seems like you can't, you know, pinpoint it. Uh, but, but yet there is this kind of idea of, of uh, a way of, of making it stationary. And I think that was one of the, the reasons I, I, you know, picked it up and, you know, wanted to, to say, you know, here's one version of things. Here's the voice inside my head, right? These stationary songs that I have are all written in the second person, right? And the you is, is me. <laughs> Spoiler. Um, and, uh, right. But talking to myself, right kind of throughout the collection, um, kind of amid these poems that are cosmopolitan, that are talking to other people that, yes, sometimes are, are these soliloquies, but there is always, I think, this, this you know, lover, this other person, this um, kind of other self that is, uh, you know, present in, in those poems, whereas the stationary songs, um, you know, become this kind of internal monologue that runs through it. Uh, so I, I was kind of playing with this idea of, of, right, these kind of two versions of the same present and, and that, right, the present isn't just isn't stationary. It's, it's, it's a multitude, but right. Trying to kind of bend time a little bit in that way. And yeah, but to get back to the, the public and private, uh, you know, I think, you know, that was like one of the central tensions, stressors, I think for me, uh, when writing these poems was that I had just started, uh, transitioning. I just started taking hormones and I mean, I was being just misgendered, uh, like uh, constantly. And it really was miserable. I, it was, I was really struggling. I, you know, just, I was in therapy a lot. I just, uh, really was having a hard time both wanting to be out in the world, in the city, uh, right? That's my personality. That's what I like to do is be um, out in the world with people, but also feeling just constantly, you know, unseen, right? Constantly uh, being seen in ways that I didn't want to be seen. And, and that was was uh, really, really uh, tenuous, I think, part of my life with a few years that, that I was writing these poems. And, you know, uh, to get back to the pandemic, too, which which I do think brought up a lot of these questions of the public and private for uh, a lot of different people for different reasons. I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine who's also trans, and uh, we both were like, it's honestly been so nice to not be out in the world because I feel like I get to, I, I'm not being reminded constantly that people are seeing me in a way I don't want to be seen um, and feeling like, oh, I, I feel less stress. I feel good, <laughs> uh, right, being alone because I, I'm not constantly in this this world that that is kind of reflecting something back that, that I don't want reflected. Um, and that was really sad to me. I think both my friend and I were, we were like joking around, but it was like this this moment of, of, of true relief, I mm -hmm. think. One of the things that I've loved about sort of guest hosting this sure. this uh podcast is being able to talk to like other trans people sure. yeah. um and <laughs> it's such a relief <laughs> it it's so cool to yeah. like i don't know talk about trans shit yeah and have people <laughs> listen to it um, <laughs> it is cool <laughs> but i i definitely like approached this book as a trans person as well sure um and felt 
a lot of the um, painful parts of it, mm-hmm. I think, very resonant yeah. with my experience. And I, I can see how that is also very connected to the public and private. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about was like all of these horrific like threats to gay and trans existence yeah. that are like percolating up in politics across sure. the country. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. So okay. I have yeah. <laughs> like an interesting relationship to where I'm from. And also partially because I moved from a place that was pretty openly hostile. Um, yeah. You know, I had my community there. My, my dad is actually gay. So I had like okay. a very accepting queer little bubble yeah, in yeah, the, totally. the city, but it was, I, I think because of that, I've been like, so I, I was just thinking about like, how, you know, the private has been this like space that's sort of coded as female um, mm-hmm. versus like the public being yeah. this space that's coded as male. Mm. Yeah. And then I was trying to like yeah. map queerness onto that. Yeah. Like there's the sense that like we're only allowed to have our sex lives and erotic agency in our homes, like not in public. Um, But then when you actually think about it, even that is under threat. So like at first I was trying to like say that, Oh, the private is like the, the space of queerness and transness, Mm -hmm. but actually there is no space of queerness and transness. And I think that that's really painful. Yeah. And I think that that is what I was sort of experiencing from the collection reading it through a trans lens, like seeing that confusion and like lack of space and like having to build a new city. Right. Um, in order to have a space for queerness and transness. Um, yeah. And I had a thought, but I Uh, think it was (laughs) supposed to be a question. I don't know where I... I, I, Well, yeah, no, I I really uh, like this topic of conversation. And, you know, what's kind of making me think about, I think, is, right, this this queer space or this trans space, this queer and trans space as as this, um, right, this having no space, like you said, right, but also... Right, always in motion. I think always traversing these these spaces. Um, right, always going back and forth, and and the kind of e- exhaustion that that comes along with that of not having the place of solace, not having the public, and not having the private. And yes, being able to access both, but um, right, always kind of in in flux, um, and not having a place that that is is one's own. And I think that you know as much you know pleasure that I I think that I write about. Uh, right, this kind of a boy in the city, right, this kind of traversing spaces and landscapes and, and, and meeting people and, and, you know, being out in the world, um, right, there is, I think, also, right, this exhaustion that, that comes along with that as well, um, right, this kind of inability to sit still, this inability to find one thing, and both uh, that can be, right, the, the, the absolute uh, ecstatic pleasure of queerness, but also can be Right, this this thing that that is is also a pinnacle of 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 of, of yeah exhaustion of of pain, uh, however you want to put it. But yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's 
Yeah. Yeah. I think what I was wanting to ask was something about like the domestic as a queer space, Mm. because a lot of the poems in this collection do happen like in, in an apartment with a partner. But it's a sort of complicated domesticity because, you know, there's the pandemic raging outside. And also (laughs) there are other lovers outside. Right. And there's, there's so many poems where you're like looking out a window or you're on a fire escape and there's this sort of, you're in the private space, in the domestic, looking outward And I wondered, like, what, what, I mean, I guess on on the one hand, it could just be like, it was a pandemic. What else were you going to write about? (laughs) But like, what, um, what did it feel like writing from the, a domestic space, um, toward a kind of queer and trans spatiality um and like making space for that yeah that's that's a really cool question i i uh, you know i i think i write a lot about the domestic space and and like you said right the apartment right with the lover um as this you know which i think goes back to what i was talking about earlier a little bit but feeling right safe in that in that moment with that person being seen the way that I wanted to be seen, not just by myself, but by Mm -hmm. someone else and feeling safe and comfortable, uh, with these other people, even if, you know, uh, that dramas ensued. Um, (laughs) but I, I, I think that I, I hadn't really thought about that until you said it, but there are a lot of, I think, poems that, that take place on, on porches and (laughs) fire escapes and looking out of windows and, uh, you know, wanting to engage in this world, but wanting to engage in this world as someone that, you know, I, I wanted to be, but felt like either I couldn't be at some points in the book that I was becoming that, um, I was, but was, was constantly being told that I wasn't, um, right, right by, by, you know, the cues of, of, of the social world and right. So kind of, you know, uh, being on those, those edges of, of, of the safe kind of home, those, um, both metaphorically, I think, and, and literally, and, and kind of, you know, looking out into the world, but wanting the world to look back in a certain way. And, and, you know, that being kind of this moment of, of fissure and failure, um, that, that I think a lot of the poems are, are, you know, coming to heads with. I love what you just said about looking out into the world and wanting it to look back in a certain way, because that's kind of like why you write the book. Right. I mean, maybe (laughs) not why you write it, but yeah, that's, yeah, Yeah. that's how you present yourself in writing. Um, Hmm. we should read more poems. Sure. Let me see. I would love for you to read. This place is called Beulah. Oh, okay. Awesome. I, hey, I'm glad you picked that one because it's got a little William Blake uh, epigraph. Yeah, so. I figure you have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah. <so>. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, here, this, so like I said, it has an epigraph, so I'll read that first. There's a place where contrarieties are equally true. This place is called Beulah. It is a pleasant, lovely shadow where no dispute can come because of those who sleep. This place is called Beulah. The lake was blue pastoral, and it was clear, and my face was inside it next to yours. I said, look at this blue pastoral landscape. 
You looked into my eyes and smiled. Once I considered that pastoral could be past and oral, not sexually, of course, but traditionally, a past oral tradition, though it is romantic. The sun burned us into brighter animals. I'll follow you, I had wished to say, as you submerged into the simple dazzle of lake water. You disappeared. You shepherded me so far away from myself that I do not feel at home there any longer. I watch who I am becoming swim out across the water and stand next to where you unfold. Blue heron, you said. Blue errand, I heard. It was like I had never heard you before. Um, yeah. Talk to me about Blake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Where, where to begin with Blake? I mean, this, uh, you know, this was kind of a fun ha happenstance writing this poem because I was, I was staying with some friends in, well, someone I was dating and then our friend in, in a place called Beulah up in Michigan. Um, and then I, because I'm a Blake, you know, I'm like, Beulah is also a, a land in which William Blake created. Um, and it's kind of this, this, you know, uh, heaven adjacent, uh, or kind of, uh, Eden like, like place of solace. Um, and, uh, so, you know, as I was thinking about this kind of speculative landscape that, that he, he's, uh, writing in, um, while also kind of in this very real, very pastoral <laughs> landscape of this kind of beautiful, you know, Michigan world that I was, I was in, in that moment. And, uh, so that was, I think like, it was kind of a good example of, you know, to talk about, to go back to what we were talking about earlier of where I feel like something that I'm, I'm studying pretty, intellectually or whatever kind of seeps into into this kind of really intimate moment um, I'm having with someone else and yeah you know I I used to read this poem at readings all the time but then I I was always just like kind of rambling on about the William Blake stuff and then I was like now I'm talking too much about William Blake and the poem is now becomes the second afterthought so that's why I stopped reading it at readings but I'm glad that you asked me to read it today on this podcast yeah <laughs> good <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah I, yeah that's so interesting that the place that you were visiting yeah was also that that's really cool <laughs> um, yeah yeah and it brings up like the midwest like yeah You've lived in many places in the I Midwest, have. but you yeah. are not from the Midwest. Correct. And so, like, I don't know. What are your impressions? What <laughs> What is... Because the Midwest is such a... You know, I've experienced a little bit of it because my brother lives there. But sure. I... I am interested in, like, the different regions of the U.S. and, like, those different literary communities. Those different, like languages the yeah. ways that like there are different sort of cultural and um social priorities like right. when I first moved to New York City I had a little bit of a culture shock because of the I was working in the service industry yeah. and like the way that like manners worked yeah. <laughs> was just completely different because it was like you know in the South, you have to talk to every person. You have to have a conversation <laughs> with every person. Whereas, like, if you do that in New York, you are being uh, annoying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I guess I'm just interested in, like, I don't know, your yeah. your relationship yeah. as a long-term 
outsider <laughs> in a region that is not the yeah. one you grew up in. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think, yeah, it's funny. So I, yeah, I grew up on the West coast and I, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's always funny. You know, people are like, you have kind of a West coast energy, you know? And I'm like, okay, I, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> you know, I, I walk in somewhere and I'm always like, Hey, how's it going? Like not necessarily trying to have a conversation, but you know, I don't know, friendly. <laughs> I did that uh, at a restaurant the other day in, in Brooklyn. And the person looked at me like I was like the weirdest person in the world. And then was, I was like, am I, uh, can I, am I allowed to order some food? And <laughs> she was like, yeah, do whatever, you, you know, like yeah. do whatever you want. Uh, it's New York. You yeah. Know? The uh, other thing, like <laughs> in New York, you're supposed to like order without like, like there's just an eye contact thing that I still haven't mastered. Oh yeah, it's very intimidating. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not good at it. I am um, just like rambling on and making them more and more annoyed yeah. at me as as I go. But I do feel like the Midwest has kind of you know has a little bit of the West Coast friendliness that mm -hmm. I think you know that I I kind of grew up. I I worked in the service industry. Uh, I've been like worked at a million coffee shops, restaurants, all of that um, since I was in high school. So I feel very like, you know, a hey, how's it going kind of a person. So, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the Midwest kind of circles uh, that I've been in, which have all been kind of literary oriented. I did my MFA. I'm doing my PhD. I had an internship in publishing, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that I kind of have had this kind of creative Midwest upbringing in literature. And, you know, I think it, it's been it's been funny to, to kind of spend all of this creative energy, all my, you know, 20s that I've, I've been living in, in the Midwest, in this landscape with, with this, you know, with these groups of people that are also, I think, always like people who, who didn't grow up necessarily in the Midwest too, um, right, who are, oh, we moved here for school, we moved here for, you know, a job or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed it a ton. I think the Midwest is, is just absolutely gorgeous. I, I, people are always like, don't you want to move back to California? And I'm like, no, I've never wanted to move back to California. I, I love the seasons and I love the, you know, the landscape just gets me. I think a lake is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. A lake is amazing. It's, it, it just, it blows my mind and the sunsets and, you know, that kind of big open landscape. I, I dated someone in St. Louis while I was living in Chicago um, the past couple of years. And so I was always traversing St. Louis to Chicago, which is, is this long drive through, through fields um, basically the entire time. And I mean, sunrise and sunset doing those drives is like, I, I can't get out of my head. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, it's, it's absolutely stunning to me. So, yeah. I, I can't remember what you asked me, but now I, I just rambled on about the Midwest and, and I'm happy to do it, you know? Yeah, I don't know if it was like a cogent yeah. question. Yeah. So whatever <laughs> cool. you, okay. whatever it was, yeah, you probably yeah. answered it. Okay, good, good, <laughs> so, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also, this is sort of a tangent, different thing, but sure. one question that I had that I've been wanting to talk about, and maybe, maybe a this place called Beulah is actually a great place to talk about this. Okay. Awesome. It is one of those poems that to me sort of comes closest to like a traditional love poem. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it's one of the happier poems in the collection, <laughs> but I think there's, 
as I said, there's a lot of erotic poems. There's a lot of poems that like are at least engaging with love. Yeah. Um, even if they are not traditionally like positive, adoring love poems. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the things that I found interesting in those poems was that there's frequently a, a kind of ambivalence, um, which I sort of alluded to earlier, yeah. ambivalence or at least like multivalence to the, um, the speaker, I assume you yeah. are, <laughs> yeah. um, your relationship <laughs> with like love and embodiment and being seen. And mm-hmm. it's sort of kind of like what you were talking about. Like I, I'm looking out into the world and I want to be looked back at in yeah. a certain way even with partners that sort of becomes a salient and maybe especially with partners, it's a complicated thing, especially in like, you know, transition is nonlinear and also like there isn't necessarily a start or end to transition, but like in the throes of it, you know, like the, the, the big, like my body is changing every day. Right. It's a complicated time to have a partner. And, um, yeah. I wonder if you could talk more about like being seen and presenting yourself and perhaps the like possibility and disappointment of being seen by a partner and what that felt like and what it meant to write from that place of ambivalence in the love poem as a form. Yeah, I think Ah, oh, yeah, that's a okay. There are a few a few things going on with that question. <laughs> so yeah, I think that the the love poem, right? The love poem as as a mode as is definitely something that I I, I love to write. Um, and and like you said, they're not always you know happy, happy, happy. That's not the way love works sometimes. <laughs> but but you know definitely in the in the mode of of the love poem. And and I think in this this really chaotic time of, of my life, which I would call my uh, time of transition very chaotic uh, f- for myself, emotionally, physically, romantically, you know, always having the poem get to take shape, right? Having it come into form was something that that I really, I really loved working on, um, right? Where, where language and the world could, could come into to a, a form when I think that I was uh, feeling really, really formless and shapeless. You know, that said, I think these relationships that I was in, you know, were, were, you know, were places that I both felt absolutely seen and, and loved by, by, you know, the, the different people that I was with. But there's also these kind of reminders of, of, right, my body, right? There's these, uh, this tenuous relationship with intimacy as, as both this something, something, you know, I wanted and desired more than anything. Um, while also, uh, when I got it, it was, you know, this, this kind of striking, striking moment of realization of, uh, oh, I, I don't look the way I want to look, or I don't appear the way I want to appear. And, and so I think that that tension between both being loved by someone and being seen by someone and wanting those things while also uh, feeling, feeling, you know, kind of in this constant state of flux and, and, and failure, um, not, not because, you know, anyone did anything wrong, but just because it's, you know, it was these, this moment where I, you know, couldn't see myself in, in ways that I felt 
I wanted to be loved uh, in, which which was was a big struggle and and definitely, you know, added a lot of tension to these relationships. But I also feel really lucky to have had them um, at that at that time. Uh, so what was it like writing from that yeah, place yeah. and like sort of bringing those private intimacies into right. the public? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, it was, uh, I think for me, it was really, you know, a really useful way of, of dealing with my life when I felt like I couldn't deal with my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and it was, uh, you know, giving myself an opportunity to rethink and, and re-inhabit, re-experience these moments where I, you know, was being desired, where I was being loved, where I was being seen by someone who saw me in, in ways that I couldn't see myself. And uh, I really needed to, I think, hold on to those moments um, in, in these these moments of, of, you know, despair, really, that mm -hmm. um, I, I think I was writing from. Uh, but so I think, you know, that's that's the tension for me is, I guess, uh, right, here are these these moments that are love poem worthy, right? Mm -hmm. They are the, the topics of love poem, desire, mutual desire, mm -hmm. right? Someone likes you back. It's great. Um, and also, uh, you know, uh, being in, in the throes of, of, I think, a really, you know, difficult depression and, and you know, you know, just moments of, of, of kind of grievance um, for, for this life I, I had and was having and didn't have yeah. um, all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I want to read one of the um, untitled poems. Sure. And then I have a question based on that one. So the one that I would love for you to read starts in the morning you drive a car and it's on page 63. All right. In the morning you drive a car. The car is black and the sky is black. The sky is dark then erupts into something dangerous. You are always going where one must go. Music plays. You're going somewhere important, and your stomach feels tight. When you walk into a room, often you imagine you're a better person than you are. She loved you no matter what. People on the sidewalk don't care about you at all. There's a comfort in both. You want someone to get up from their seat, hold you against the wall, Fuck you until the sky goes dark or the mind blankens. Blank as snowfall untouched in the morning when you go to the car. Blank as the sea or the sand or the gray desk in front of you. To your left you see the sky. Dangerous. The phone rings. It rings like it wants something from you. Ring, ring. You want to be held against the wall. To shudder. Ring, ring. To fall inside. To fall very deep. Yeah, these untitled sections were some of my favorite ones. Oh, in thank you. The book, um, especially the the lines in this one that I have highlighted are: "When you walk into a room, often you imagine you're a better person than you are. She loved you no matter what. People on the sidewalk don't care about you at all. There's a comfort in both. That's like, there's just so much in those lines. <laughs> but." Um, I'm interested in how this sort of illustrates what you've been talking about, about being seen by another person and both the like 
both the affirmation in that and also the like that it shows you what you don't necessarily want to see. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you know, you're imagining that you're a better person than you are, which is not what the person in the film sees. Yeah. But I'm also really interested in, and a part that we haven't talked about as much is the strangers that populate this book. Yeah. Because, you know, you've, you've alluded to wanting to be seen by the world, but you haven't, or I guess I haven't asked and you haven't answered (laughs) about what, what those like, there's a kind of intimacy in describing strangers, like someone on a skateboard speaking French, someone, um, I'm forgetting like other instances of describing strangers in this book, but (laughs) that kind of thing Uh where you've sort of taken an image of them and put them into a poem. Yeah. Um, And there's a kind of intimacy in that. Yeah. That is different than the intimacy of talking to a partner, different than the intimacy of talking to a reader. And I wondered if you could talk about like what that intimacy of like having a moment of relation to strangers that mm-hmm. you may never see again yeah, and where they may or may not be perceiving you that like, yeah, what those moments taught you within the like learning project of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, one of the things I I was doing a lot that I do a lot when I'm you know in in not having a great day mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is uh, you know is go out in into the world and walk around the city <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, you know I, I think those moments whether or not you know the strangers are engaging with me in in any significant way or if you know they're just people walking around in the world. Um, are often uh, those, I think, moments of intimacy for me, um, kind of in this public sphere of, of, you know, that, you know, those are the people that I think save my life all the time um, is, is going and, and yeah, watching, you know, kids skateboard and, you know, one of them speak in French, you know, um, that that was like, you know, a kind of uh, tethered to the world when when I felt, you know, untethered from the world. And I think those those strangers become these these people that, um, you know, even if they're just a kind of passing glance, right, these little glimpses of, of moments uh, that I'm existing in, um, right, those people are, are just as important to me and, and just as important to the city in which, you know, I'm kind of building in, in this book. And, and whether they know it or not, you know, they're, they're, you know, main characters, I think, to me in, in the emotional sense. Yeah. Yeah. My partner has been one of the like big projects, I guess, in both of our lives that we've been working on is like developing relationships with like our community outside. Cause we've yeah. been in this bubble for two years sure. and he recently read times square red times square blue by Samuel Delaney, which I have not read yet. I need <laughs> to, but um, he was talking to me about like this idea of contact and yeah. like those contacts on the street being 
like a really truly essential part yeah. of the like tapestry of a person's experience of place and feeling like that's something that he needs to cultivate in his life. Yeah. And I think that's like, that really reflects a lot in what you're saying. And maybe that was the end of that thought. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's awesome. I, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, as, as fraught as, uh, as fraught as my relationship with strangers in the world has been, <laughs> I think that for the most part, you know, I, I feel really rejuvenated by just seeing people living their lives. Um, and, and I think often the times in which we don't interact are the times that I think are the most kind of special, um, of kind of letting each other exist and, and kind of walking, just kind of walking past each other, um, while also kind of taking one another in. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was someone who was on Commonplace a while back who referred to poetry as like an observational medium. Mm -hmm which made a lot of sense to me, but I think sure. also like that sense of like, it strikes me as a very like poetry relationship to strangers to yeah. be like, these are the people that anchor me to the world. Yeah. Even if they don't notice me in the <laughs> same way that I notice them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And totally, you know, I guess that's why we, why we write. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably end soon. Awesome. I feel like we had a really good conversation. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank for you. Sitting with me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, anytime. Anytime. Cool. <laughs> cool. All right. So then I will. You've been listening to episode 106 of Commonplace with S. Yarbury. I'm your host, Valentine Connedy. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Zucker, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Wave Books, W.W. Norton, U.S. Press, New York University Press, Grey Wolf, and Deep Vellum. Huge thanks, as always, to the patrons who support Commonplace, to all of you who send messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. <laughs>